Welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. This episode, titled The Origins of Global Surgery, is a part of our new Global Surgery series. I'm Quentin, one of your hosts today, and I'm joined by Dr. Wiederman as my co-host. Well, welcome, audience. We're here to talk about global surgery. This is our introductory episode, our very first episode, uh, and we have some exciting guests with us today. I am Dr. Josh Wiederman. And I have a strong interest in global surgery. I lived in Ethiopia for a while, and now I'm here to start an education process and a whole series of global surgery podcasts aimed at education. And today's episode is specifically to talk about some of the origins of global surgery. I have the honor of introducing our first guest. Dr. Blake Alkire is an otolaryngology head and neck surgeon. He earned both his MPH and MD prior to completing his residency. He is the assistant director of Center for Global Surgery, and he is the founding father of Global Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Initiative, in which I am a member of. And we take a look at everything in head and neck surgery from people around the world, spanning from global burden of disease to workforce issues to gender disparities. It's my honor to have Blake. Hello, Blake. Hey, Josh. Thank you so much, first of all, for um, putting this podcast series together. You know, the the hunger for global surgery content is ever burgeoning, and especially um, in the otolaryngology world, as I think we, as we try to claim our our foothold in the broader global surgery movement, um, I'm really excited to see what this podcast is going to do for us. Um, And I'm really excited to speak with uh, Quentin and Key as well. Thanks for joining us. Quentin, would you mind uh, introducing our next guest? Yes. Uh, so Dr. Key Park is a neurosurgeon and faculty at the Program in Global Surgery and Social Change. He's the director of the North Korea program, and he's traveled over 20 times to North Korea, leading a group of volunteer doctors, surgeons, nurses, students, and other medical professionals. Hello, Key. Oh, wow. Well, Quentin, I think your pronunciation of those hard-to-pronounce words were excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, thank you to Quentin and Josh for uh, creating this platform for disseminating you know, the, the information about global surgery and, and really honored to be part of the, the first episode, right? So this is kind of a... Yeah, the inaugural episode, yeah. And then uh, to be joined by my colleague and friend, Blake, this is a, an extra special episode. Excited to be here. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, your both of your backgrounds are convergent in a sense, but started from very different areas. I would love to hear from each one of you, what was your origin of your own global surgery endeavors? What triggered your passion into getting into this? And when did it happen in your career? Let's start with Key. Oh, great. Great. Because Blake's story is going to be much, much more... Um... Long-winded? but different you know the other side of the tracks if you will right (laughs) i started off in private practice you know i wanted to be a community-based neurosurgeon i really didn't have the kind of understanding of disparities in care really didn't know about you know what 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 was going on outside of my immediate uh, community but then i so i did private practice in uh, in missouri small town missouri south of st louis for about 10 years at that point, you know, started to look beyond our borders and say, wait a minute, you know, we have abundance of medical care in our country. And what about the people living in poor countries? 
I became curious about that. I started looking at ways to serve and that led to working in Ethiopia and Cambodia and then coming back to U.S. because I was frustrated that the, the method that I was taking, which was really just training other surgeons, was insufficient. And we can get into this a little bit later. It's a really a system level intervention that we need to uh, uh, talk about. So, and that's what led me back to U.S. to do an MPH and then stayed on at the, at the program in global surgery as faculty. So you were already in in practice, completely done with training before you realized that you wanted to do global surgery. I was a, a epitome of an American private practice neurosurgeon. You can get into that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure I want to open that uh, that bag of chips there. Yeah. Well, that that's fascinating. And Blake, was it similar for you? Did you have interest in global surgery after starting practice or during training? So I, I will tell you my origin story is, is definitely controversial, especially given how we think about the overlap of NGOs and mission trip service-like trips. But long story short, when um, my dad actually, who is OG global surgery, spent about uh, 30 years going every summer to Ecuador. He had a relationship with an NGO there. Um, and he was frankly doing short-term mission trips, two-week trips where uh, he's an orthopedist. And so they would uh, line up cases ranging from you know ganglion cysts to club feet to uh, eventually joint replacements. But you know, add to that controversy when I was 13 and had no <laughs> skills that would necessarily be helpful for a mission trip team, I, I started to join him. And I went down uh, for a total of six summers, but it was the first summer in the first week where I distinctly remember after a patient encounter um, with my dad that I knew that I wanted to um, uh, be a doctor and I knew that I wanted to do global health in some capacity. And even at that time, I, I started thinking about getting an MPH because I, I wondered about the broader systems issues that weren't necessarily being addressed um, in a mission trip like fashion. But yeah, it was essentially you know seeing um, the impact that my dad was having and, and alleviating suffering, even on the, the scale it was. And, and so that led me to pursue global surgery as a medical student. Um, so I did get my MPH and then a guy named John Mira, who uh, I think most folks listening to this will probably know the name. I was just starting the program in global surgery and social change. And I was frankly, just lucky enough and privileged enough to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, that's how I got started as a third or fourth year medical student back in 2009, and then stuck through it. Uh, Not to date yourself or anything. Yeah, no, God. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll cut it uh, shorter now. Stuck through it through residency, and then um, here I am uh, faculty now. I was going to ask, um, just from the medical student standpoint, I'm sort of interested in what your involvement looked like as a third year and fourth year medical student versus residency. Yeah, you know, the program in global surgery um, at that point was basically me, uh, Dr. John Mira, a fellow named Chris Hughes, and an undergraduate, Katie. And we were basically, I think this is a fair characterization, trying to find our way into you know the broader both global surgery which it wasn't really even termed that in the broader sphere at that point and and how we could impact global health more broadly so my involvement at that time was based on both john and i's interest in economic modeling and so uh, i basically under the tutelage of john's brother-in-law who's an economist at duke 
knew that uh, money speaks for better or worse in today's both uh, regional, national, and international policy levels. And so we wanted to join what other folks were doing from a cost effectiveness perspective, but make a broader case that um, investing in surgery has positive uh, return on investment for both macro and micro economies. And so I basically uh, tried to teach myself is not the right word. Um, I, I concentrate on economics in my MPH and then um, under Dr. Jeff Vincent, who is uh, John's brother-in-law, and um, try to start making the broader economic case for surgery. And then as a resident, not to be too long-winded, I just kind of got lucky that my research years or my research months fell at the same time that the Lancet Commission was really um, in high gear. You know, it's an interesting point because a lot of things in global surgery, at least in my experience, it just, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And Absolutely. You, just walk, you walk through that door that presents itself. Is that what happened to you, Key, when you were in practice? Did some door open for you and you said, well, I'm going to go with this? <laughs> it was a much more of an inwardly journey for me. You know, it was kind of a, a introspection because I was living in this kind of a dream world, you know, having a, a successful private practice, having everything I could wish for and more. And then asking myself, well, is this really what we're supposed to do in life? What is the purpose for me? You know, and then there's a verse in the Bible and I'm not super religious, but this one I do remember is it says it's in Luke says, you know, to those much has been given, much is expected. And for some reason that verse really resonated with me and then, uh, you know, and then there's another um, quote. I think it's um, it's either uh, Gandhi or Mother Teresa. I have to look that up. But it says the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And it was sort of an inward journey. But I found it. I found it in working in this space of global surgery. It's been amazing. I, I just want to echo uh, Blake's uh, mentioning of John Mira. He's sort of the common denominator why Blake and I are in the same place. You know, he started the global surgery program at Harvard Medical School. And I, I don't know, Blake, I don't know if this is true or not, but when I saw the words global surgery 2030, and, and that was the report that was released as a result of the Lancet Commission on Global Surgery. And someone had sent that to me by email saying, hey, Key, you should look at this, you know? And, and when I read it and it just hit me like a, a rock, global surgery, that's it. This is what we're working on. I don't think that, you know, it was, anybody kind of knew it, what, what, what we're trying to do, which is, you know, help uh, increase, improve access to surgical care, but we didn't have a name for it. The, obviously, the roots are in global health, and then adding the surgical component to it, global surgery. But that's what, it's like, well, aha, you know, that, that, that moment. And I got to tell you, that as far as right place at the right time, Blake and I were in Geneva, I think it was maybe three, four years ago, every year there's a World Health Assembly hosted by the WHO headquarters in Geneva. And we were at one of these big global surgery you know, strategy meetings. And um, someone got up and said, you know, we really need to have people, you know, if you read the Lancet Commission report and we need experts who's coming up with these numbers like the potential loss of GDP of $12.3 trillion over the next 15 years. And I just raised my hand and says, that guy's right here. It's Blake. He's sitting right next to me. <laughs> remember uh, that, Blake? I, I do remember <laughs> that. Yeah, no, I mean, very um, surreal and humbling experience because, you know, I still to this day don't consider myself necessarily an expert. But, you know, I want to return to a point the key made and build on that. I, 
you know, I think that I, I haven't really thought about the fact that putting a name on on the broader movement, which you know had there had been whispers of the word global surgery here and there, but I would agree with you, it wasn't until 2015 that it really became more broadly used, especially within the broader global health movement and academia and policy. But you know what the the Lancet Commission, and also I think we have to give credit to Disease Control Priorities, which is a um, it's many things, but it's kind of the economic bible of global health, and uh, in many ways makes an economic case for global health interventions. Uh, they published an entire volume uh, on surgery in 2015, and then there was the uh, WHA resolution 6815, which also came out in 2015, which emphatically stated that you can't have universal health coverage or care without surgery. But returning to The Lancet, what I think it really did is it brought together what had previously been a patchwork of really dedicated, smart actors and gave us um, some orientation for both consensus on what is the problem and also um, on a consensus on how do we start addressing this problem. And so it was both good, I think, for external progression and sort of, I think, put a stamp on uh, global surgery as a broader movement um, and made it, frankly, reputable. But I think internally, it also helped us start to put rubrics and models together for how to actually tackle the massive problem that is folks not having access to surgery and the attendant suffering due to that. Absolutely. And you've both touched on so many important topics here that I just don't know even where to start. But religion, going back, you briefly mentioned it, Key. A lot of trips in surgery started as mission trips, and they were very religiously based. And in fact, we're going to have a whole podcast episode based on the role of religion in global surgery. But Blake, you may have seen this with your dad's early trips. They may or may not have been rooted in some religious background. But my question for both of you is, you know, how did it go from these singular, sometimes religion-related trips to, to other countries to getting on the forefront of the WHO, the Lancet Commissions, and now into academia that you both are forefront of? How did that leap happen? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that is, is a, I mean, it's a really fascinating question. Um, you know, Key and I have had, uh, I think, some at least really impactful conversations with each other about the, the role that spirituality and, and religion plays um, in our backgrounds. And there's also other folks, Robert Riviello comes to mind, who is able to interface with the drive for what makes them want to do global surgery without the the problematic proselytizing and almost quid pro quo that came with mission trips. You know, you can come to our clinic, but you have to listen to a, a sermon, one of the many problematic quid pro quos. But to, to get back to your question, how did it get there? Well, I think he was starting to touch on it in his answer to his origin story, which was frustration. Um, I, I think a lot of surgeons were seeing the problem to their credit of the short-term mission trip. And I want to put a caveat there that I'm not saying that these things can't be done well, um, although I think it's really hard and takes a lot of effort. But I think surgeons were doing these trips and saying, my gosh, the problem is so much more than what a two-week trip can um, address. 
And it, I think it came in two sort of major realms. The first is education. Um, and so, you know, the first sort of twinning models that, or academic twinning models that you, you saw were between folks who were still doing mission trips, but understood that the, the broader bang for your buck was to learn with our colleagues in LMICs. And I, and I, I purposely avoid the word educate our colleagues, because as anybody uh, on this podcast knows, the transfer of knowledge is absolutely bidirectional. And, you know, the surgeons on the, uh, on the ground in, in many LMICs can run circles around us because they're operating without electricity you know, half the time. But back to your question, so seeing education and seeing the, the importance of building up a workforce, I think was step one. And then around the same time, I think surgeons started to see that affecting policy was important. So you started to see a, a significant amount of cost effectiveness analyses being published starting in, a, in 2003 with uh, an obstetrician, I think obstetrician named Colin McCord, um, and then uh, Dr. Rich Goslin and, and many others sort of starting to interface at the policy level by making an economic case. But then there was still frustration because broader movements at uh, the national and or international level like WHO, surgery really wasn't making headway. It really wasn't part of the global health discussion. So I think that uh, a lot of folks sort of realized that we needed the oomph that organizations like WHO, like Lancet, like uh, disease control priorities would bring. And so there's this this perfect storm of uh, frustrated uh, both uh, academicians and clinicians and policymakers coming together to try to improve on um, what was a, you know a mission trip based or mission trip education based model. Yeah, and I think that there's going to be a really obvious connection here. So I'm going to lead us there. You know, Blake, you were on this original Lancet paper, were you not one of the authors? Uh, yes. And what would you say? would be the paramount findings in that paper that exposed the frustrations and the and the big disparities that we saw back in in 2014 2015 i think you know your your question is what was our our summary of what the major problems were um and you know i was lucky enough to contribute to a couple of uh, what we called uh, the key messages um, from the Lancet Commission, and there were five. The first is that five billion people lack access to safe, affordable surgical and anesthesia care when they need it. And I would say of all of the numbers, the five billion number is the stickiest and is now routinely quoted by World Bank and WHO. And we mean we mean sticky in a good way. Meaning sticky that, in a good uh, way, yeah. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. Like a peanut butter sticky. Like, <laughs> exactly. Um, as long as it's chunky peanut butter. Okay. That's debatable. <laughs> For the, um, so that's, you know, key message number one. I, and that number continues to be striking to audiences. I mean, it continues to, uh, I think, compel folks to act. I, I've talked to um, a number of medical students and undergraduates um, who are appropriately struck by the, the enormity of the problem. You know, the second key message was that not nearly enough surgeries being done, that uh, at least 140 million uh, additional procedures um, are necessary to fill the unmet need of surgery, and only 6% of surgery was happening in, in low and middle income countries. Uh, the third key message, and shout out to our fellow otolaryngologist, Mark Schreim, for heading this one, um, is that 81 million people every year are being pushed into poverty, having to pay for surgery, 
and up to 3.7 billion people around the globe are at risk of something called a catastrophic expenditure, which is essentially a proxy for being pushed into poverty for paying for health services. 3.7 billion people are at risk of being pushed further into poverty. The fourth key message, however, was that we can actually invest in surgery and make a difference. If we do nothing, uh, in other words, if the status quo continues from 12 point, from, I'm sorry, from 2015 to 2030, then $12.3 trillion of GDP is going to be flushed down the toilet. However, just a $350 billion investment at the global level could make a, a massive difference in terms of the ability to scale up surgical services. And then the final key message was that surgery is an indivisible, indispensable part of healthcare. And these were uh, Jim Kim's words. And based on the fact that 30% of the global burden of disease is surgical or anesthetic in nature, and that surgery is what we call cross-cutting, there is no category in the global burden of disease in which surgery does not play a role in treatment. Um, so those were, I think, the catalyzing findings that have really spurred a lot of additional interest, both within and outside of the, the global surgery world. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com global surgery podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.